Hey, everybody. Welcome to the ProGov podcast. I'm your host, Alexis Iconi. ProGov 21 is a digital library of resources for progressive local government. ProGov 21 has partnered with around 400 organizations to build an archive of thousands of policy briefs, laws, tools, and other resources, all of which you can access for free by going to progov21.org and using our advanced full-text search engine. And ProGov 21 is constantly growing, adding new resources to our archive every week. Because ProGov 21 is still so new, I've had the job of helping get the word out. This means a lot of time spent on the phone, talking, and writing emails about what ProGov is and how to use it. And the best way I can think to describe it is that it's like LexisNexis or Google Scholar, but for policy. For those of you who may not know what these are, picture this. You have a big writing project and you need to do some background research. Instead of going to a library and hunting down a book or journal so that you can photocopy the articles or chapters to print out and carry home, academic search engines like LexisNexis or Google Scholar allow you to search online for the scholarly article or chapter you're after, and then it returns a series of hits with links to downloadable PDFs. ProGov 21 does the same, but for progressive local and state-level policy. Go to ProGov 21 and use our advanced search engine, or get started by checking out one of our 27 policy roadmaps. Each month, we update one of our policy roadmaps and focus on promoting progressive policy along the lines laid out in that roadmap. This March, ProGov 21 is focusing on high road transportation policy. Today, we have an episode all about transportation, including an interview with Eric Sundquist, director of the State Smart Transportation Initiative, or SSTI. Housed at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, the folks at SSTI provide research, technical assistance, and information sharing services for transportation officials and the communities they serve for adapting practices to modern policy around efficiency, equity, and the environment. I met with Eric virtually to learn more. Hi. I'm Alexis Iconi. I am a, a grad student working here at COWS. SSTI and ProGov 21 are both projects of COWS. You may remember from our very first episode, an interview with ProGov 21 creator and director of COWS, Joel Rogers. Joel explained that COWS is a progressive think and do tank that promotes high road solutions for democracy, equity, and sustainability. Did you start? When did you start? Yeah, sorry, <laughs> we been ships passing in the night. Yeah, we may have been. Eric is a really talented, really nice person. And if the pandemic hadn't sent us all home, we'd actually be working on the same floor of the same building right now. I got here in 2007, was finishing my PhD at Georgia Tech, ended up at Cows because of the, the values it espouses, the Wisconsin idea, you know, operational scholarship. It's not just um, writing papers and hoping people will read them or talking to other scholars. It's like really going in and working with decision makers and policymakers to do more and better things. The Wisconsin idea is a principle and an ideal that education should influence people's lives beyond the classroom. It comes from an address from a former UW president, Charles Van Heys. The Wisconsin idea is that academics shouldn't be the only ones to benefit from empirical research. Like Eric said, it's about taking good scholarship and disseminating it beyond the academe. It's about working with decision makers and policymakers to do more and better things. Today's episode is all about transportation policy. Up next, Eric talks about the work of the State Smart Transportation Initiative and how SSTI aims to realize the Wisconsin idea in all that they do. We've been around 11 years. We, as the 
one of the S's suggests we are organized mainly to um, address state transportation policy, but we also work a lot with large municipal and MPO transportation organizations. And we work in three different ways. We convene state DOT leaders um, around various topics of mutual interest. Um, we do a lot of technical assistance and then we publish reports and blogs and things that are accessible to, to all. And you know, there, transportation is a very wide subject and we can't be everything to everybody. We're, you know, it's a small staff here at UW. Um, we also have a, a relationship with Smart Growth America. So we do technical work with them for them and some of their outreach. We're really about connecting people to destinations more efficiently so that they can prosper and meet their needs while emitting less global warming pollution and so that people can be safe and that all everybody in our society has what they need in terms of access and we're not excluding people. If people call, we try to help as much as we can. They really do. Some of our team reached out to SSTI last month. We asked them to have a look at the transportation policy roadmap we updated for this month. And sure enough, we heard back from SSTI right away. They hooked us up with Chris McCahill for a hand. So last month at ProGov, we, we focused on housing policy. And I know that the SSTI's new measuring accessibility tool takes into account much more than just accessibility and ease of transportation. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to the importance of taking housing and transportation policy together. So we've spent a lot of our time developing practical solutions around accessibility. And the definition of accessibility brings in land use and transportation. It's like how easily can we get to the places we need? And those places can actually move around. So land uses can change. Mm -hmm. Transportation networks can change. So how easily can we get to shopping or school or work? You know, all the, all the things that we need to do. Um, and so the big need, accessibility has been around in the literature forever and ever. It's been in the ivory tower. You go to conferences and there's paper after paper on accessibility, but rarely used in practice till recently. And now we have the opportunity to actually employ it in practice and to make better decisions. We, the analysis, the, the sort of the way we leave accessibility guide is more of a guide than a tool. It's kind of helping people work through the steps of doing accessibility. The Measuring Accessibility Guide combines transportation data and land use data. The guide outlines technical approaches and practical considerations for transportation policymaking. The Measuring Accessibility Guide shows how using the right data to leverage analytical tools and user-friendly platforms can produce local and regional accessibility metrics. In transportation forever, we've been measuring the wrong thing. We've been just measuring how fast cars go. We've barely been measuring anything about transit or walking or biking or other modes. But to the extent that we do, we kind of like look at them, like how fast are people going, but not how well do they connect people to things. And that's what accessibility does. There's a whole way to do that. And once we knew, know like levels of accessibility by different modes, we can also then pretty much say how much driving are people going to do, how much emissions is there going to be, um, how much is it going to cost, how much congestion is there going to be? So it's a really powerful tool. So we're excited about bringing it forward. There are ways to do it now because the data is better. The, um, the tools that are out there that we talk about in our guide are getting better, but really nobody was taught it in planning or engineering. So that's where we've come in and tried to help. In the past, this sort of scholarship has remained largely in academics, but has recently made its way into, into the mainstream. Is there anything in particular that's caused that? Yeah, a few things, like computers are much more powerful. So the, the kind of analysis that we need to do for accessibility is like, 
how easy is it for everybody in every little chunk of the metro area to get to every place else? So it's like a big uh, matrix and it's multifaceted because we want to know by different modes and for different kinds of trip trips. So it's a lot of computing power. Secondly, the data. The fact that Google Maps and other sorts of navigation software and apps exist, they had to collect a bunch of data, like where is the food store? I want to find the food store. Or how, where do the buses go? All that stuff has been collected and systematized in a way that um, still not perfect, but it's, it's pretty good and way better than it was 15 years ago. So now we have those, and now we have a couple of vendors who are out there like writing code for the software to like sort of bring all that stuff together so you don't have to like reinvent the wheel. With the advancement in technology and just data accessibility, what opportunities do policymakers have to advance transportation equity? What sort of steps do they need to take to get that ball rolling? Yeah, so equity is a thing in transportation that lots of people talk about but don't really operationalize in a meaningful way mm. unless it's often, frankly, it's kind of a there's a little greenwashing that goes on because people have a pet project and they can say, well, there's low-income neighborhood nearby and obviously it's good for equity. Well, it may be terrible for equity because it may just be that all the traffic now flows through this low-income neighborhood. Lots of ways to look at it. There's safety hazards, there's exposure to emissions, there's lots of mm -hmm. different things. The, on the access, accessibility angle, it's really do people have access to the things that they need and the specific population. So we know, for example, in Dane County, where we live, about one in five black households doesn't have a car. And so are jobs located in the transit shed or are they starting to locate somewhere else? Mm. We're better off than most places in the U.S., but gradually more and more jobs have been located outside of where you can reach by transit. And so people without a car who struggle to afford a car um, are disadvantaged. So that's a whole policy area around land use and where activity centers and employment ought to be located and not, or how the transit system should be run, how we subsidize one mode over another, or how we help people get around. When we do our analysis, another case I'll give you uh, in accessibility, there was one of our clients is looking at taking an artery, an arterial highway, and making it into a freeway. And that will make it quicker for people to drive to the downtown of uh, this major city, which I won't name just so I won't like call anybody out. And so you can look on a map with our accessibility tool, the freeway makes it harder for people to get across that corridor, people who live in that area. So they lose accessibility mm. for walking and biking to the store, that kind of thing. So yeah, people further out in the more like wealthier, wider area, they, come out great. So, mm -hmm. if you, you know, you do it by color. One is all one color and one's another color and, and one's going up and one's going down. And that's a sort of analysis that really hasn't been available or, you know, only again in like papers, one-off sorts of studies. So we'd like people to be, have those tools to be able to look at that for everything that they do. Earlier, you mentioned that there's an issue sometimes with the way we conceptualize transportation equity and that there's an element of greenwashing that can happen. And so I'm, I'm curious about the conceptualization you think is most useful for equitable transportation. Well, I think it's uh, you start with access. You look at the, the access for various communities. It could be people who are do not have a car is a, a very easy one um, or for whom a car is really expensive, people who are not able to drive for one reason or another because of 
uh, disability. Look at, at people who for whom who have been marginalized in one way or another, right? People of color, lower income, and their level of access to food, to work, to green space, to schools, to healthcare, spatially, like not just like can they pay for it when they get there, but on transportation care, can they actually even get in the door? Look at those things, compare them, you know, there's not a um, standard for this is this is the minimum, you know, acceptable amount of access to this sort of stuff yet, although hopefully that those sorts of things will develop in practice, but just compare them to the population as a whole or to wealthier groups. Comparison can be very revealing and it can help you then decide where to intervene. So you don't have to just go by who's making the most noise at a, at a city council meeting and advocating for something. Those tend to be, and I'm on the Madison Planning Commission, I speak from experience, entitled, wealthier, whiter people, right? Because they have the access, they know how to do it. They're not working second shift when the meeting's occurring and all this stuff. So you hear from people like that, and I'm, I'm in that category. You could, I know how to do that. I would know how to go advocate for my own interests. And people who are renters and maybe aren't living in a place for very long, um, you know, have other barriers to being able to pursue, you don't hear from. So you can't just like assume that you're getting the right projects that are sort of bubbling up from the community because there's structural problems in how they bubble up. So be intentional. What and You only have so much money, right? So you, you've got to have to put it where it does the most good in affording the most access for the people who need it the most, sort of a John Rawls, Maxi Man sort of thing. That's what I would say. And then like you also, there, like you said, there's also a whole bunch of other things. There's like a lot of negative externalities in the transportation system that are un unduly burdening marginalized communities. We built our freeways you know, because it was cheaper in lower income places in cities and they became enormous impediments to uh, and destroyed communities. And that continues to happen. That's not like ancient history. Mm -hmm. The freeways are still there and you know we're still making them bigger in a lot of cases and we're making it worse. So there's also just like sort of the here and now effect of what you know what the facilities are doing and it doesn't even have to be like a major freeway that is so obvious. We have a gazillion bad arterial highways in our country and they're unwelcoming places to be, to, to work, to have a business, to live and so the property values go down right along them. And then our, you know, people who can't afford anything else end up in those places. And it's a safety hazard. It's a noise hazard. It's a, so there's a lot of stuff. We could go on. So new transportation infrastructure can actually be a destroyer of communities. If new transportation infrastructure is developed without consideration to equitable access, it can divide up lower income neighborhoods and expose the people who live there to new health and safety hazards. New highways can make it harder for residents to get to the grocery store or to work, but the people who live in these neighborhoods are already marginalized, facing challenging circumstances that make it difficult to advocate against harmful placements of new transportation infrastructure. The intersection of health and transportation is especially salient now, and particularly in relation to the marginalized populations Eric mentioned. With the coronavirus pandemic, and the work-from-home-slash-essential-worker-labor dichotomy. Those working outside the home face new transportation dilemmas. I asked Eric to talk about some of the challenges for transportation resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a lot of open questions about how it's all going to sort out. We do think a few things are happening that will be long-lasting and that will have different kinds of effects that we'll have to deal with. One is work-from-home. People are going to, people like it, you know, maybe not five days a week, but 
Um, if you can work from home two days a week and come in the other three or come in, employers don't have to provide as much space for employees. You can share a desk with somebody. Maybe you can work from home all the time and only come in like once a month and hang out in the meeting room with your colleagues just to remember who they are. So we're already seeing sort of the death of the morning rush hour. We, it just is not a thing under COVID times. It's just like, yes, traffic ramps up through the day, but it used to be like it would spike and then go down in the middle of the day and spike again in the afternoon. Now kind of goes gradually up till the middle of the afternoon and then people who are working from home uh, get off work and they go to the store or pick up their kids at school if their school is open. Um, so the whole pattern of where people go, what time is changing. Um, and, and maybe the people drive just as much as before um, because they, they start from home and instead of going downtown on the bus, they just drive everywhere or they don't trip chain anymore. They don't like pick something up on the way to work and then, you know, economize on trips. They just, everything is a home-based trip. That's all really new. And it means like these big, you know, highways that take you downtown and back out, like the one I was describing a minute ago, might be like old, you know, we don't, might not need that. We might need more, you know, local traffic maintenance or more traffic facilities or better yet, bike and pedal transit that can get you around to the store instead of just hub and spoke downtown and back. You know, right now, and then in terms of funding and things like that, because highway departments are so linked to the gas tax, um, that hasn't really fallen that much. The overall amount of driving is down, but in it was, it was down substantially, I shouldn't say that, but it's coming back, right? It's, it's just like on a different pattern, it's different destinations and so forth. But what's really been hit hard is transit because transit often they're limiting the number of bus uh, passengers can even get on the bus, canceling some routes. And it's transit is, is pretty much a commuter facility. There are people who go to the store on the bus, there are people who go to the doctor, what have you. But the vast majority of trips on transit are for commuting, whereas the vast majority of trips for cars are for something else. So it's not really clear in a work from home world what is gonna happen with transit. And that has an equity impact, obviously. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of jobs that, so one, you have a lot of people who don't have cars and they still need the bus. They might need to, to go to the doctor and something else. And all of a sudden, a, a lot of the revenue from that system is coming out because the people who are working from home aren't paying the fare anymore. And then secondly, a lot of frontline workers, minimum wage and low wage workers can't work from home. I mean, you can't, you know, there are a lot of physical jobs you cannot do from home. And so they're still gonna wanna get to work, right? So so it's a real, that's the, the highway stuff is gonna work itself out one way or another. It's a problem, but it's like a much less of a problem than what we do with transit. And then there's a whole nother thing about land use. Like if these office buildings are not occupied as much anymore, you know, what's gonna happen to the whole central business district or other places that like all the restaurants and all the secondary activities or people who bought houses or apartments nearby their workplace so they could walk to work you know how's that all going to work so it unpacks in lots of ways that's just the that's just the tip of the iceberg that was eric sundquist of the state smart transportation initiative this is the ProGov podcast thanks for listening next month we'll be back with you with a new podcast episode about tax and revenue policy including an interview with a representative from the institute on economic and tax policy if you liked today's episode, be sure to follow ProGov21 on Twitter and sign up for our newsletter at progov21.org.
To find out more about becoming a featured contributor like SSDI was today, email info at progov21.org. Special thanks to Eric Sundquist of SSTI for joining us today. Thanks to the Free Music Archive Creative Commons for supplying our soundtrack.